We thank you, Father, for the joy that we experience in fellowshipping together with brothers and sisters in Christ. And we know that this is just a foretaste, just a tiny little glimmer of the joy and the fellowship that we will experience one day in your presence. And the overwhelming um, enthusiasm and, and uh, glory that will be there as we uh, share around the throne of God and as we encourage one another and as we sing to the glory of our King. Father, I pray that you will help us to keep that ever before us and that that will buoy us up as we face the trials and tribulations of this life. I ask, Lord, that the word as we look at it this morning will speak to our hearts individually, wherever we may be in our relationship with you and our needs this morning. We trust that you will make that word that we read this morning fitting to that need. And Lord, I ask that you will bless again throughout this complex this morning in the service in the various classes, that you, your name will be uplifted and upheld in every way. And we thank you for that you are right here in our midst this morning, even as you were in the tabernacle of old. In Jesus' name, amen. You'll turn to Joshua chapter 6, beginning at verse 15. Last Sunday, we spent the entire class dealing with that passage and didn't quite get finished with it. So let me uh, read it again. Joshua 6, beginning at verse 15. Israel has come across uh, the Jordan River and they are camped outside of the city of Jericho. And they have, in accordance with God's command, uh, circled that city one time uh, for each of six days. And now we come to the seventh day. Then it came about on the seventh day that they rose early in the, at, the mor at the dawning of the day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times, only that day they marched around the city seven times. And it came about at the seventh time, when the priests blew the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city shall be under the ban. It and all that is in it belongs to the Lord. Only Rahab the harlot and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But as for you, only keep yourselves from the things under the ban, lest you covet them and take some of the things under the ban. So you would make the camp of Israel accursed and bring trouble on it. But all the gold, silver and gold, and articles of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted, and the priests blew the trumpets. And it came about when the people heard the sound of the trumpet that the people shouted with a great shout, and the wall fell down flat. So the people went up into the city, every man straight ahead, and they took the city. And they utterly destroyed everything in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep, and donkey with the edge of the sword. Now in the outline that you have before you this morning, it starts out with this passage, the collapse of the wall. And last Sunday, at the end, near the end of class, I mentioned the, the value or the purpose of the use of the shofar. The word trumpet there is literally the word shofar, and it's a ram's horn trumpet, a hollow ram's horn that was blown by the priests. And I, I read the passage from Scripture in Exodus 19 that illustrates that the blowing of the shofar, first of all, announces the presence of God. And it was to be used at, at the various uh, uh, feasts that were celebrated 
uh, during the course of the, uh, the religious year for the Jews, Hebrews. And then secondly, the shofar also proclaims judgment because the shofar is blown in many instances, particularly as you read through the prophets and the minor prophets. And we looked at an example in the book of Joel in the second chapter. We ended up last time talking about the question that many ask, what is the agency that God used to level the walls of Jericho? What did he do? Some people are more concerned about the agency God used than they are the reason why God leveled the walls. And, uh, you know, the agency most often mentioned by many commentators is the possibility of an earthquake. And certainly that was a possibility. But I, I read to you the commentator John Ray in his statement relative to this. He says, whether an earthquake was used by God or not, it was a miracle of timing and completeness. So whatever God did, whether by earthquake or by whatever method, um, it was God's work. And, and the agency isn't the focus of the event anyway. Uh, the focus of the event is the declaration that God is sovereign and God is in charge of the affairs of his people and the affairs of history. And we read from Hannah's word of praise to God in the first book of Samuel, chapter 2. And whenever you begin feeling a little bit down, and whenever you begin to feel a little bit like maybe the Lord has let you down or maybe the Lord has not quite you up because it gives you a real sense of who God is in the lives of his people. Not just who he is transcendently, but who he is eminently, that is here amongst his people. And now, of course, that is the whole purpose and declaration of the tabernacle, that God is not just there in the universe above the earth, but he's here with his people right in their midst caring about every life and working in every life. So as we look at this, what we discover from this passage is that Yahweh, God, gave Israel the victory over Jericho because of what reason? Because it was his will, period. End of argument. <laughs> because it was his will to do so. And of course, because Israel listened to his word and obeyed. Listen to his word and obeyed. So when it's the will of God and his people willingly obey, it happens. Nothing in this universe can stop it. Those who endeavor to remove the miracle from the event, and there are many. Most of your modernistic scholars are very much into removing the miracle out of this. In fact, many of your modern scholars don't even believe that this happened. They believe it's just a story. It's an invention. In fact, I was talking to one of our professors at the college on Friday who's been studying at uh, Oxford University. He's completed his work there, and he's very grateful for that. That there, if you even mention the word divine inspiration, they kick you out of the program, or you'd be in danger of being kicked out of the program. And, uh, <laughs> and, and the, they, they don't believe that anything before David is, is history. You know, David is verifiable, they believe, but anything before David, which would be Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, <laughs> First and Second Samuel, or at least, you know, getting into the Samuel books, that all this is just fairy tale or, or, you know, tradition or legend or something else. Funny thing about the fact, though, that Jesus and the New Testament authors refer back to Adam and Abraham and, and <coughs> Moses as if they were real people. You know, if Jesus believed there was a real Adam, I, I think it's very dangerous to, to argue that Adam is just a theory or a, you know, a, a legend or something like that. 
Those who don't want a miracle here have a reason for not wanting a miracle here. And that is because they don't want to believe God's word and they don't want to be held accountable by it or to it or to God. Besides, what kind of earthquake would there be that, uh, with which God had no you know, relationship or was uncontrolled by God, which would just happen to flatten all the walls of Jericho except that portion upon which Rahab's house was built? Actually, the Bible tells us what the power was that flattened the wall of Jericho. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 30 and 31 starts out with two words, by faith. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down. By what? Faith. By faith. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. There is very serious danger in questioning the historicity and authenticity of stories which are given in the Word of God and in no way indicating that they are parables or legends or anything of that nature, but indicating that they are true events of history. Because as soon as we start deciding ourselves what part of Scripture we're going to believe is truth and what part we're going to believe is, is legend, we, we, we proclaim ourselves God, in effect, what we're doing, proclaiming ourselves God. And that's what we live in today. We, we live in a society today that has decided to proclaim itself God. Individuals who feel that they know better how to live, and of course, that's why the church and Christians are running into a buzzsaw nowadays, uh, evangelical Christians, that is, who, who believe in the Word of God become looked upon as not only politically incorrect, but absolutely bigoted. And of course, in our pluralistic society, bigotry is, is a nasty word. And I, I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. But I don't think that should in any way sh shake our faith in the truth of the Word of God from Genesis, the first verse, to Revelation, the final verse. Now, one of the reasons that some have questioned the historicity of this event is the fact that there is not any so far clearly identified uh, physical evidence, archaeological evidence, for the walls of Jericho having fallen down and or for the city even existing at this particular time in the way it seems to be described here. Jericho is one of the oldest cities in the world. In fact, some argue it is the single oldest city in the world. It has been given a date by some of 9,000 years ago with its foundation. It has existed through most of that remaining period of time uh, in one form or another, not always exactly on the same site, but within adjacent to the current site. During the thousands of years of existence, archaeologists claim that the city has had over 30 walls. Well, the wall in the days of Joshua, we're told, fell down flat. It collapsed into a pile of rubble. God shattered it. The city we will be reading here, the city was then torched, leveled and torched. So the, the city was destroyed. The city was destroyed. Now, the city will not be rebuilt on that site for 500 years till the days of Elijah. Since the city was that long in ruin after the walls had been knocked flat by God and then the city had been torched and destroyed by Israel, it was subjected to 500 years of erosion and 500 years of quarrying. This is what happened to many cities and structures in history was that others quarried what they wanted to build something else. Uh, you go over there to the Great Pyramids in Egypt and you'll notice that 
of the three great pyramids of Giza, there's a little bit of the sheeting that was on the pyramid still left at the top of the second pyramid. The, the first pyramid, the pyramid of uh, Cheops, is totally stripped of its outer layer. That, that whole pyramid, which has a core of red granite, was originally sheeted in limestone. So the whole thing was like a shimmering white pile of salt sitting out there. Yet all of that limestone has been stripped off down through antiquity because people have used it to build other things, other places. And so you can imagine the same would be true of Jericho. Struck building stones that were still usable would have been hauled off. After all, it's just a rubble, just a pile. It's a quarry in effect. So carry it off and build something else somewhere else. And so it, I don't think it should be surprising that there is very little physical evidence archaeologically of the Jericho of, uh, of Joshua's day. I think in connection with this, in connection of everything I've said so far this morning, I'd like to read a verse from Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. It's a very powerful warning. It's, it's not a warning to be taken as anti-intellectualism. It's not a warning to be taken as anti-science or archaeology or anything else. Anything that, that is probing the truth, discovering the truth, admitting the truth, is truth. Okay? Thy word is truth, it is said of Scripture. And, and so the truth out there and the truth of Scripture never conflict. But Paul says to the church at Colossae, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of this world, rather than according to Christ. In another passage, he refers to science, falsely so-called. True science deals with facts, and of course those facts do have to be interpreted, but the more facts begin to support one another, the more the interpretation comes closer to reality. There is so much in science today which is speculation and not science. It's like all this stuff talking about the distant universe and wormholes and uh, all this other stuff. You know, it's, it's really speculation. There, there is no way to prove any of that. And so it is with the whole theory of evolution upon which these doubts are based. Almost all questioning of the historicity of Scripture is based originally on the 19th century acceptance of the theory of evolution by many people high standing in the church, particularly the Anglican church and the Catholic church. And as a result, many people think it's very unsophisticated today to, to believe in, in the literal uh, word of God. You mean you really believe in a Garden of Eden? There was an article, where was I reading that article? It was just last night. Maybe it was in the newspaper. Was, was it the newspapers reading about it? Yeah that there's this uh, man who is saying that he believes the Garden of Eden is over there in, in, in western Iran, not too far from Iraq. And uh, that a lot of people today in the area of uh, Bible study and science uh, don't even believe there really was a Garden of Eden. That's just a fairy story, you know. So for, for him and, and the man upon whose work he is basing some of his beliefs, he, he doesn't feel like it's very popular to advocate that this could be really the Garden of Eden. But I guess you, you, there probably sometime in the future tours may be available <laughs> to, to the Garden of Eden. And that's what they talk about in the article anyway. Tabriz, I think it's by the city of Tabriz over there in Iran, nearby there. Well, let's, let's move on. This could be sermonized on for a long time. But let me move on to verse 22 of, of Joshua chapter 6. I have a feeling I might be preaching to the choir anyway. 
I trust most of you probably do believe in, in the divine inspiration of, of Scripture because Peter tells us that all Scripture is inspired by God and given for our instruction. And I don't think God inspires legend to be believed by people as fact. I mean, God knows all things. And God also knows that it would be, well, let's see. <clears throat> From the time Moses first penned Genesis, which would have been about 3,400 years ago, let's say, until the 19th century, think of all those poor people who literally believed all that, you know? All those Israelites and then all the early Christians, all the way up to the 19th century until people finally got enlightened enough to know that this is just legend. You know, how could it be that God would allow all those millions of people to go on blindly through life believing a legend is truth? I'm tongue-in-cheek, obviously. We always have to view things, I think, from the total sweep of history and not just from the modern approach. You go back to the Renaissance, for example. In the Renaissance, which broke out in Italy in the mid-14th century and lasted all the way until, uh, you know, into the 16th century. In the Renaissance, people who studied history studied the history of the Greeks and Romans and the history of their era. And they left out the entire Middle Ages because they said they're unimportant. The Middle Ages were unimportant because people were, were ignorant during that time. But now we're enlightened and we're smart. And, and therefore, we know the important time is our time and the Greeks and Romans. Well, you know, that's the modern attitude today, that anybody who wrote history before, let's say, the 19th century was not very well informed and, and therefore probably doesn't give us anything that's very accurate which I think is a very arrogant attitude. Verse 22, And Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, Go into the harlot's house and bring the woman and all she has out of there as you have sworn to her. So the young men who were spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brothers and all she had. They also brought out all her relatives and placed them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and all that was in it. Only the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. However, Rahab the harlot and her father's household and all that she had, Joshua spared. And she has lived in the midst of Israel to this day, for she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Then Joshua made them take an oath at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord is the man who rises up and builds this city, Jericho. With the loss of his firstborn, he shall lay its foundation. And with the loss of his youngest, he shall set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. The slaughter of the Canaanites began. Joshua, in order to fulfill the promise the spies had made, sent the two spies back into the city because they knew where Rahab's house was. Of course, everybody else by that time knew too because it's the only part of the wall still standing with a house on it and to bring her and her family out of the city. Now, we don't know how many there were. We know it says her father and her mother, her brothers in plural, but it also says, and all her relatives. So we don't know how many people that was. Could have been five, could have been 10, could have been a dozen. We, we don't know. But they were all brought out of the city. Joshua preserved Rahab for two reasons. First of all, for gratitude for what she did for the two spies. And secondly, because the spies had taken a vow that she would be protected. And so Joshua saw to it that it was carried out. Now, did God respect the vow of these two spies? The scripture does not say that the two spies got down their knees and prayed, Oh God, what should we say to Rahab? And, and then they made this vow to her. 
that she would be preserved. We, but we, we don't know what they exactly did, except that they made this vow. But we do know that God respected the vow. How do we know that? Well, because the only portion of the wall still standing was the portion with her house on it. You know, God knocked the whole wall flat except this one part. It must have really looked funny. You know, you look out over the city and, well, of course, there had been other houses in the way, but you got outside the wall, look around, and here's all this rubble, and all of a sudden there's one piece of the wall sticking up here, 25 feet high, this house sitting on top of it, overlooking the wall. It could have been a little scary for the people inside looking out if they'd looked, you know, close by. And, oh, we're now a skyscraper, you know. <laughs> now, to me, there is, there is an amazing thing about God in this. Just can you imagine God destroying an entire city except the house of ill repute, ill repute and its resident harlot. Everything else he destroys. God in his mercy preserved not only Rahab, but her family. Did her family have any faith? Some. They had some faith because they were in the house. They were in the house and they had probably been in the house throughout the whole week. Because they had no idea what was going to happen. They knew Israel was coming and they marched around the city and what's going on here? So they were in the house probably for the entire week. There was a measure of faith expressed there. Contrast that with Lot's sons-in-law. Do you remember the story of Lot? And the angel came and told Lot, get yourself out of the city because God is going to destroy it. So Lot went to his sons-in-law and told them what was going to happen and they laughed at their father-in-law. And as a result, they perished in the destruction of Sodom. These people had only the witness of this girl, this woman, who was a harlot. That's the only witness they had. And some of them were her brothers, as well as her parents. And they had enough faith to stay in that house and not to leave. And as a result, they were preserved. This family is Gentile. They're Canaanite. And therefore, when they are rescued, they are not brought into the Israelite camp. They are probably were given tents and set up outside the perimeter of the Israelite camp. Later, after the whole city was destroyed and everything was taken care of, they probably, it doesn't say specifically, but we can feel that it's implied, that they went through ceremonial cleansing. The brothers and the men in the family, of course, would have had to have been circumcised. And then they were adopted into Israel. They became a part of Israel. Wouldn't it be fascinating if you could find Jews today who you could trace linearly back to this Canaanite family? They wouldn't be the only ones. There were many other Gentiles that were incorporated in Israel from time to time. And I don't just mean the Ashkenazi in Europe uh, that, of course, became mixed in with Poles and Germans and Austrians and others in, in the uh, 2,000 years since, or last 1900 years since the, uh, the great diaspora. But um, I mean people in, in the biblical record, like Rahab and her family. According to her new faith, Rahab left harlotry. She married Salmon, who was one of the elders, leaders of the tribe of Judah. And as I mentioned before, and as the scripture makes clear, she mothered Boaz. And, of course, Boaz is the hero of the story of Ruth. Isn't it amazing how all these things come together? And then, of course, as, as we know, uh, through Boaz came the line in David, which soon be born. Well, not too soon, <laughs> a few hundred years later. Uh, David would be born, and then through David would come Messiah. Incredible. 
Absolutely incredible. How could it be that a Canaanite pagan harlot would be in the physical bloodline of Messiah? By the miracle and the grace of God, that's how. And when we think about it, you know, just transfer it to yourself, to, to myself. It's really no different. Um, we are as vile, unsaved, we're as vile as, as, as Rahab ever was. And yet God has delivered us if we have come to know Christ as our Savior. Noah in his day, we're told, believed God. It was, a, it was accounted to him as righteousness. And, and the implication there is clear that the only one in the whole world who believed God was Noah. <laughs> Now, Noah could have done what Elijah did. Remember, we recently had a sermon on, on Elijah and his crying about uh, being the only one left of all the prophets who believe. And God says, no, wait a minute, Elijah. There are 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. Uh, but Noah could have really said, oh God, there's none but me and been right. You know? In the whole antediluvian world, Noah stood alone. It, similarly, in the whole city of Jericho, Rahab stood alone. Oh yes, her family would be saved too, whether as a rub off of her faith or because they too came to the same faith, we don't know at that time, but definitely through Rahab. She alone at first, at least, was the true believer in the entire city. How many people were there in Jericho? We don't know, but its population was certainly larger than that of the next city, i.e. which they go to, which had a population of 12,000. So, you know, we're, we're probably looking at 20, 30,000, you know, whatever. A fairly sizable number of people. But righteousness was found in her alone. After Rahab and her family were rescued, the city was plundered. And the plunder of the gold, the silver, the copper, and the iron was to be put in the tabernacle treasury. And then the city was to be torched. And everything in it, as we've already read, was to, every living thing was to be killed. And, and we spent some time last week talking about how that was not a pleasant thing for the Israelites. And it wasn't something that God rejoiced in doing, but it was something that had to be done. As a cancer has to be removed from a body in order for it to live, so the Canaanites had to be removed. To be sure that Jericho stood as a solemn testimony to the judgment of God, Joshua placed a curse on the site. And he said that anyone who attempts to rebuild this city will do so with the blood of his eldest and the blood of his youngest. They will die in the process of attempting to rebuild this city. Now, was this just Joshua's curse or did God inspire it? Was Joshua beginning to develop a little bit of a Napoleon complex here? I curse this city, you know, because I'm Joshua. Well, let's uh, turn to 1 Kings. really answers the question directly, both questions actually. 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 34. In his days, Hiel the Bethelite built Jericho. Whoops. <laughs> he built Jericho. He laid its foundations with the loss of Abiram, his first son, and set up its gates with the loss of his youngest son, Sigab, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. It wasn't Joshua's curse. It was God's inspired curse spoken through Joshua that this site not be rebuilt, and if it is, it will be rebuilt the blood of the eldest and the youngest son of the rebuilder. It's exactly what happened. Exactly what happened. I mentioned to you before that if you go to Jericho today, you will find that nothing, that, that there are no structures on this site. It's a mound. Around the site is New Testament Jericho, which is also a ruin. 
but modern Jericho, but not exactly on the site. Modern Jericho spreads out much larger than the city we're talking about. I, I don't know what the actual acreage is of modern Jericho, but it's multiple times larger than, than where we're talking about here in this city. Well, let's go into uh, chapter 7 here. Joshua chapter 7, we'll read the first five verses. But the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, from the tribe of Judah, took some of the things under the ban. Therefore the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near beth east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. So the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not let all the people go up, for only, only about two or three thousand men are needed to go up to Ai. Do not make all the people toil up there, for they are few. So about three thousand men from the people went up there, and they fled from the men of Ai. And the men of Ai struck down about thirty-six of their men and pursued them from the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them down on the descent. So the hearts of the people melted and became as water. If you want a passage of Scripture which teaches the consequences of disobedience to the Word of God, you've got a very powerful one right here. The Israelites are an ex-slave people. They have been out of Egypt for just 40 years. They have been living a nomadic existence in the wilderness. Very little to possess. And so the temptation to loot this city for personal profit had to be pretty great. Really. You're going into a city, you're killing off all the population, which means they don't possess anything in it anymore. It's all yours if you want it. You know, kind of idea. And we have to again note that Jericho was kind of a garden spot. It is still a garden spot. It's a wonderful place, physically. But it was also on a crossroads, an east-west trade route that went between the King's Highway, which ran along the crest of the, uh, of the Transjordan Highlands over there with, where Bashan and uh, Gilead were. And it came down and it went back up the uh, other side of the escarpment up to meet the ridge route, which ran north and south through Palestine from, well, from Beersheba all the way up past the Sea of Galilee, and, and it connected into the Via Maris, which goes all the way over to Damascus and ends up at Babylon. So, I mean, w they were on a, a significant, a secondary, but a significant um, trade route. And so, there must have been people in Jericho who were merchants of some wealth. I mean, I don't think this was just a city full of poverty-stricken people. I think there were some people with a measure of wealth living here. Thus, the wonder is not that one man violated the ban, but that only one man violated the ban. We have to look at both sides of this. It's a horrible thing what Achan did, but look at the other side of the picture. Of the thousands of men who went into that city, only one yielded to the temptation. Only one yielded to the temptation. And he took some of the plunder for himself secretly, of course, he didn't let anybody see him do it, and hid it. Now, Achan obviously rationalized this whole thing for himself. After all, it was so little. Later on in, in, the past, in, in this chapter, we, we're told what it was. And really, in terms of volume, it was a very small amount. And 
Of course, he made sure no one knew about it. Now, we will discover later that obviously his family knew about it because they end up suffering the same consequences he does. It's very obvious that he failed to remember something, that nothing is hidden from the eyes of the omnipotent and omniscient God. Nothing. I'm sure that he did not at all comprehend the far-reaching consequences of his disobedience. There's a phrase that we use sometimes that goes like this, what people don't know doesn't hurt them. That phrase, if you apply it to Achan, implies disrespect and it implies lack of integrity. I've always, you know, in, in relay to this, I'm always think of the, the, uh, the, I don't know if it was an OSHA study or whatever it was, but somebody was secretly uh, videoing a kitchen in a restaurant and they noted that somebody making a hamburger dropped the patty on the floor and just picked it up and put it right back on the bun, you know. What people don't know won't hurt them, right? That implies no respect for whoever's going to eat that thing because how would you like to be the one out there eating that thing that had been on the uh, floor? This implies that we can do bad things in secret with no consequences. The scripture, however, says that as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. That's a scary passage if you analyze your life. Because sometimes you, I don't know if you do, but every once in a while I catch myself, what am I doing, you know? I'm, I'm not thinking about things that are very godly at this moment. The real lesson isn't simply that we had better watch out because God is looking. The lesson is that we need to change our thinking so that we think as God thinks. That we think as God thinks. So that we agree with God that His Word isn't always grating against us and we're looking for some way to skirt around it. It's like people are always looking for ways to distort the Scripture so that it's okay to do this and okay to do that, about which the Scripture makes it very plain it's not okay. It's because they are not finding, trying to find a way to, to understand God and believe as God is. They're looking at God as some kind of a cosmic killjoy up there who's going to smack them if they do something wrong unless they can somehow make an excuse for doing it. Total misunderstanding of Scripture and of who God is. Paul tells us in Philippians that we are to have the mind in us that was in Christ Jesus. In Colossians, he tells us, he urges us to set your things, on, your mind on things above, not on the things that are on the earth. By this, he doesn't mean you go around just dreaming of heaven all day long, you know, so that you don't do, you're, you're of no use here on this planet. What he's saying is, by mind is your heart's desire should be towards the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Your mindset, your life focus, my life focus should be on what God has set before us. Let me read from Romans chapter 8, verse 5. Romans 8, beginning at verse 5. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Period. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if Indeed, the Spirit of God dwells in you. 
But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Very clear statement of what it means to be a true believer in God. It's a mindset. It's not a feeling. Oh, I feel like I love God. If you've ever dealt with the Mormons, you know they talk about, oh, if you've ever had the burning in the bosom that we've had, you would also believe as we do. Next time you have it, take out the seltzer. <laughs> it's not a feeling. It's a mindset. And how do we get that mindset from here? There's no other else, is there? I can't just go around and think, I've got to think God, think God, think God. How do I think God? I only can think God by knowing who God is, and I only can know that, who He is, from the Word of God. If Achan had truly known God, understanding and agreeing with God's purposes, the temptation might have been there, but he would not have yielded. See, that's the difference. Temptations come to Christians, but yielding is another. If we don't understand the nature and purpose of God, we will succumb to temptations in tragic ways, just as Achan did. And I think we are reading a whole lot about that now. I mean, it's just racking our nation, I believe. And the only way we could come into agreement with God and His purposes and His ways is to know His Word. And that's one of the reasons why we study it, I trust, in church, in Sunday school, and uh, privately. Well, I think we're out of time, so um, we'll begin looking at verse 1 and, and looking specifically at the details of this passage. I mean, they are fascinating. Particularly when you put it on the landscape itself, the actual landscape here, and, and visualize where this army had to go and what happened here. It really is, is a fascinating story.